Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rudeutchen. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today I'm talking to Mark Titchener, the British artist known for his work across a range of media, exploring the tensions between different belief systems and in particular for the way he takes words found in advertising and political propaganda, say, or religious flyers, and gives them new meaning by placing them in a different context. He grew up in the southeast of England before studying at Central St Martins in London. As well as being nominated for the Turner Prize in 2006, he has exhibited in several major spaces around the world, including the Venice Biennale and the Upstream Gallery in Amsterdam, as well as the Art Gallery of Ontario, Toronto, where he was artist-in-residence in 2012. As well as choosing his five most inspiring objects, we sat down in his studio in London and discussed the power of words, his dedication to public art, and his magical invention for deflecting bad energy. Welcome to the show. Thank you for That's having great. me. Um, and we are here in your studio in um, South East London. How long have you been here? Uh, in this studio, about four years, and South East London, about 25 years. So, but I'm not a native. Yeah, because you're from Luton. Originally. I was born there, yeah, that's where I grew up in Bedfordshire, yeah. So, I came to London when I was 19 to go to St Martin's College of Art and Design. And I, yeah, been here since then. Do you feel like a Londoner now? Uh, I do, but then I'm also kind of aware that I'm not really. So, yeah. Isn't that... I think that's what everyone in London is like, sort of. Yeah, I feel... I don't know, my parents... Or my dad was from, you know, from North London and my children are Londoners and I kind of feel slightly awkward that they've got sort of uh, something that I don't have. But I'm definitely... I mean, I've I've always lived in the South, very short time in, in East London when I first moved here, but I do feel like a South Londoner. Mm. Was there something that like led to you becoming, did you know as a child that that, that you wanted to go into art or was... Well, yeah, I suppose there's a, in recent, there's a story about that, which is that I was, I did like drawing when I was little and I did, you know, I was reasonably good at it. And I guess I would have been about six and my mum entered a drawing that I'd done into a drawing competition for Clark's Shoes, which I won. And we got £100 to spend in Hamleys and a weekend to stay in a hotel on Park Lane. That's a pretty good prize. Which is pretty good, but that did sort of begin my career as kind of... Wait, so how, how old were you? So at six. But I, yeah, that kind of led to me doing a lot of these kind of like drawing competitions on the back of cornflakes boxes and in the newspaper and stuff. And... I did, we did, as a family, did pretty well out of that. I mean, we had two holidays to America, and did which we never would have been able to do. And But I suppose it, it was good, but it also, I think, had a bit of a negative impact on, on me because I think it just made me feel a bit like I was being forced to do it. <laughs> it's a like child labour kind of thing. Yeah, the pressure of taking yeah. your family on holiday. Well, yeah, and also just, like, that 
it was it became like a almost like at that age even you know sort of like it becomes like a professional kind of thing like there's an outcome of doing yeah. something rather than it just being yeah about and the fun, fun comes out of it what was what kind of school did you go to i just went to the local comprehensive school which was yeah it was fine really i mean you know nothing, i mean I, I didn't i liked doing art at school but i didn't really have any i was I suppose I was into it, but I didn't really understand how... I didn't know anyone who was an artist, so I didn't really understand how you were an artist. What did your parents do? My dad was an engineer, and uh, my mum was a um, teacher. She worked in primary primary schools. So, and they they kind of interested in art. They went, you know, but not... We didn't have loads of art around us or books or about art or anything. So I kind of fell into it... Um, I think I was more interested in I wanted to you know to do music really that was what I wanted to do when I was younger and when it got to the A level sort of time I didn't really have a clue what I was doing so I thought I would probably just do what my dad did because everyone I knew like in sort of the era I grew up like when I, most people worked in there was a couple of massive sort of there was a big Vauxhall factory and a Bedford trucks factory and most people had jobs that were either there or in some of the other factories or in a supply chain. So I just, I thought I would probably go into that sort of route. So I, you know, stud, studied things like, you know, I did maths, physics and chemistry for a, a while for A-levels and just hated it. Um, and somehow that led me to kind of stop doing that. And luckily the art teacher I got on with said I could join the course late. So I, that was, I sort of stumbled into it really. What did your parents think when you said you're going to Central St Martins? Well, I think I was really worried when I told them actually that I was going to go to do art, but I was really surprised actually how I think they, particularly, you know, they were quite supportive in that they didn't tell you know they just wanted me to do something that I was interested in, and then you know I suppose I was that generation that was lucky enough that we didn't have any sort of tuition fees or anything to worry about. Um, yeah, I don't really know. I think they're probably glad to see the back of me. <laughs> oh. um, what and your this podcast is about things that you put into your cabinet. Mm. So um, the one of the things I remember you told me before we started recording was a drawing actually that you did mm. as a child. Yeah, yeah. I think this is so for a s- short period, and well, I'm not from a kind of religious family, but for a short period, me and my sister got sent to Sunday school. Um, it probably was only like a month or something and um, I I quite like going because they gave you crisps and sausage rolls and stuff and um, we were mainly just draw scenes from the bible but one day um, someone said you know I don't know the teacher or whatever said um, draw a picture of God and I, I still have this this drawing um, which is I mean, if I describe it, it's basically a, a kind of yellow cra- yellow cloud with a beard and a sort of bit of a face. And I always kept that drawing because I thought it was like the first time that I kind of had this thought in my head that it was impossible to kind of draw an idea or that, you know, that representation was complicated, that, and you know, that ideas and the sort of visual world could be kind of intermingled but have a kind of complicated relationship with each other so I think it, that moment kind of enabled and changed my world view a little bit mm. when you were at um, St Martin's what was it like coming to London at that time 
it was pretty nuts. I mean, what year um, are we talking? Is that so? Ninety two. I started. Early nineties. Yeah. So that winter was the last, or well, one of the last years of the IRA Christmas bombing campaign, and in the studios, you know, hearing bombs go off. Like you know, there was two bombs in central London that year, which was crazy. Um, I mean, I specifically applied to Central St Martins because it was in Soho. I looked at Chelsea and some of the other schools as well, but I really. And in fact, the day of my interview, like I had a whole series of crazy things happen. You know, like I had someone trying to pick me up at the station. You know, like as a teenage boy, being really kind of like naive and not really understand what was happening. I had like some, you know, alcoholic screaming at me and all this stuff. Where I was just like, "This is brilliant." <laughs> <laughs> it just felt like chaos, and I really liked. I liked the fact the school was right in the middle of it. You know, and London was quite. Soho was still quite a CD place there's still a lot of film production stuff it's like loads of cool you know record shops and things there so it was a big part of the experience being in the middle of London as it was then yeah it's quite a cool sort of creative moment for London as well yeah I mean it was sort of during the kind of you know I guess the the YBAs were kind of famous but they were still kind of on the ground they hadn't gone off to the sort of you know the stratosphere yet so you could see people around and the technicians at St Martin's who were seemed a lot older than us at the time but probably were only sort of five or six years older were all practicing artists so through them you know kind of got to find out um out about what was going on and which openings to go to and kind of education about you know the stuff they don't teach you at college did you feel like you fitted in did you feel like an insider there or were you more like an outsider at St Martin's, oh, <laughs> yeah, I don't really know. I mean, I lived my, f- I came with my friends from foundation course in St Albans, and uh, one of them was at Chelsea, and one was at Goldsmiths. So I was quite lucky in a way because I kind of through them met students at the other colleges, and then yeah, you, I guess all you know without realizing it, it's what you kind of talk, you know, people talk about networking and stuff, but that stuff did happen, and we all were kind of quite aware of what other people were doing, and colleges were competitive with each other, and obviously Goldsmiths at that time was like, the, you know, the kind of at the top of the hierarchy of stuff. So yeah, it was it was fun. What else would you put into your special cabinet? Um, what do you like? What have I got for you? Um, what about this tape? Oh yeah, the tape. This is another kind of like reminiscence type thing. So, so I've got a uh, yeah. This is gonna be a bit, a bit of description. Yeah, old-fashioned reel-to-reel um, cassette tape, not the sort of mini cassette tape. So this is one from the kind of early seventies. So it's. Yeah, about 15 centimetres wide for on, on one reel. And this is um, yeah, this is a, a tape from my childhood. Um, my mum had a reel-to-reel tape player and, um, yeah, a collection of, I don't know, I think a lot of the, the tapes had recordings of her sort of s- singles on. And then my dad's kind of collection of quite obscure sort of old blues and jazz music and at the end of the tape my mum would record my sister and I singing and 
on one of these tapes is one of these recordings and it that was my first experience of hearing my own voice <laughs> and I think I work a lot with text and the idea of the voice and speech so this is quite important to me and I was absolutely kind of uh, horrified I think like a lot of people when I first heard heard what I sounded like um, so I kind of made sure that I tracked down all of these tapes so I have them in my position even though they kind of slightly traumatise me um, I know where they are no one else can get hold of them no no looks amazing they're nice objects the yeah. tape deck weighs a ton like yeah. if you dropped it you would break every bone in your foot it's quite it's quite terrifyingly um i don't know unusable like if you want to rewind something it takes like 10 minutes to get back to the beginning of the tape but it, i suppose with, with all, the, all those things it made it kind of a little bit special mm. that it was such a difficult machine what about this thing you mentioned words and obviously you know you're, you're well known for your pieces that feature words that are sort of floating in space in a way that you take from um loads of different reference points whether it's flyers or um propaganda or or religious tracks or religious tracks <laughs> indeed um where where did that come from when did you first first start thinking of doing that um well i think when i left college i had this idea of the kind of art that i wanted to make and I wanted to make stuff that you could kind of be inside. Like, I, I, I don't know why, but I'm not very good at small-scale things. I don't find myself very comfortable doing that. And, I, you know, as with most people leaving college, I didn't really have a big... You know, obviously had a tiny little studio when I eventually got one. So I had to think of a way of working. So I started making pieces where I was going into galleries and painting directly on the walls. And the first works of those were copies of the rather kind of crazy 70s off-art wallpaper my parents had and I did that for quite a long time or a few years and I think you know these big kind of abstract wall whole environments wall drawings and they were quite I think quite good for curators because they made gave shows like a kind of different kind of look and I think I just got to a point with those where I felt quite uncomfortable about the wallpaper becoming literally wallpaper so people just walk through without looking and I tried to think about how I could stop that process. And eventually, you know, I have a very clear memory of this thought of kind of thinking, well, what can I do? And just thinking, well, if you write a word on the wall, like there's that moment when you stop and you read it, you know, and then you, maybe your brain then kicks on and says, you know, it does all the interpretation, but there's that moment where you just sort of open your brain and the word goes in. And I just thought, well, that's so powerful, that moment. Um, and obviously, you know, everything has, the whole world's kind of surrounded, you know, it's filtered through language, everything, every object, every emotion, everything comes back to us in words. So it kind of tied in a lot of, I suppose, disparate thinking that I'd had about philosophy or alternative technology or, or any, all these kind of things. Um, and then I, I have the problem of, oh, what am I going to write? So the very first one is like, it just said something in on one wall and nothing on the other um but at the same time you know and it, it's amazing i suppose how long things take to click you know i realized <laughs> that all through my life every time i'd read a book or heard a you know news report or seen a newspaper or just heard something i i would tend to write things down and i just i had quite a you know archive of these notebooks and I think, 
you know, I'd always thought, oh, this is just a way of remembering stuff. I'd never really thought about it as a kind of way of working. But obviously, once I'd made this jump, I suddenly was like, oh, my God, I've got all this material. Um, so it just took a long time for me to put the part. You know, I guess in hindsight, it seems really obvious. I probably wasted quite a few years, you know, like stumbling around trying to find what I wanted to do. So that's that's it really that's how I started working with text and it you know I think it comes back to the fact you know the earliest kind of art that I really engaged with was things that was comic books and things like record covers which obviously art and text and I hadn't again I hadn't thought about those two things it's you know it's just a case of it took me to a certain point in my life to be ready to work work with that um, and I feel like you do you read a lot not as much as I used to, a but nice I do, do your read. Studio yeah. here and what yeah. were you reading at that sort of time? Were there any texts that oh. were like super influential? I think, I mean, one of the books I remember having a big impact on me at that time was a book of interviews with William Burroughs called The Job, which is interviews with a guy called Daniel Oda, and he, um, he, I mean, he's quite you know flamboyant character, obviously, and all, you know, I guess he talks in sort of hyperbole and about things he's done and it's truth and half truth but what he does talk about in that book is a lot of kind of alternate thinkers and people that he's collaborated with and theories that are kind of about uh, or that are counterintuitive to like the way the world is so through that book I sort of found um, you know like an entrance point to a whole bunch of kind of writers and thinkers and um, who've had kind of quite a or for a while had quite an impact on but yeah, I suppose I was kind of, you know, reading the kind of books that you do when you're a teenager. You know, anything that's sort of vaguely transgressive was... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, I mean, that's been a big influence. And uh, um, Philip K. Dick's book, Vallis, as well, that was another book that... Which is kind of a book about his personal revelation. But like he kind of has this... He had... A mystical experience stroke kind of seizure stroke you know, I don't know what it was nervous breakdown or whatever but he has this moment where suddenly you know well he describes it as like a kind of crystal of pink light kind of beams into his head and he suddenly has this revelation about the world not being as it seems and it's um that book it's very much like a kind of exegesis of that moment but he's um you know, in something like Man in a High Castle, where he writes about, you know, kind of alter alternate history of the Second World War, where the Germans won and invade America, like that. All those books kind of come from that 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 moment of like history not being quite as we see it. And you've spoken quite a lot um, in interviews in the past about um, how your art touch is um, sort of relating to different touch points of consciousness and how people relate to that. Um, whether it's through religion and um, I think you yourself said you're not religious and certainly your upbringing wasn't religious but I wondered if you had any belief system of your own or No I'm interested in belief as an idea the way that you attach significance or your kind of willpower to certain things and certain times and I think you know that applies to you know ideas you have about yourself or how the world should be or you know personal relations so I think I am interested in belief and I think it's sort of um, you know I guess a lot of you know for a lot of people it might be belief in I don't know you know pop something in popular culture as opposed to sort of something esoteric um, 
and I think it's something I've explored over the years. I mean, I think things have shifted quite a lot for me. I think when I was kind of more involved in kind of working within kind of art, art commercial kind of art world and kind of institutional kind of art world, I, I was... I don't know, I was really interested in a lot of kind of esoteric kind of ideas. But I, I about five years ago, things kind of... I just I started to shift my practice a bit and to work much more exclusively in sort of in the public realm. So projects outside of art galleries and museums and trying to engage directly. I mean, it comes back to some of the earliest digital works I made, which were fly posters and posters, and it's a kind of expanded form of that. What caused that shift? Well, I think I'd I'd started to work on these projects which were you know billboards and posters and quite often when I was having exhibitions there'd be a kind of external element to it and I think I just got more interested in in how that those works were functioning and the kind of scale of it as well that I could work on a much bigger scale and I suppose at the back of this work has always been an idea about the individual and how the individual relates to the world and I thought about how we quite often share spaces you know, this public space with other individuals and how we're often quite separate. So I liked these idea, this the idea of the artwork being a kind of shared experience, but kind of obviously shared in a experience in, in you know, a myriad of, of different ways. Um, and I just wanted to pursue that. And I think it's to do with trying to think about what artists do, like how you relate to people. Is it exclusively to do with being part of a kind of pre-existent, Art, art system um, and I guess a lot of writers and thinkers and artists I've been interested in are people who have tried to find other ways of working um, and that you know as I as the focus moved um, to these kind of outside spaces I, I started to think more specifically about the kind of spaces I worked in and also um, you know in the last few years a lot of my projects have involved working with people and working with directly with communities or um, you know groups and working in spaces that they occupy. So the actual artwork at the end might, in a way, look like something that I produced a long time, you know, five years ago. But the process for getting there is kind of, you know, it's not more important, but the process for getting there is a significant part of the project. And I think, you know, I've, part of that is because I just felt, you know, sometimes in the studio you can get quite stuck into a kind of like a way of thinking and quite insular and I actually don't really like being in here just working. Like I prefer to have projects to kind of work on and I like, you know, kind of collaborating with people basically. Mm. I just want to go back to the cabinet for a minute because mm. I thought since you mentioned... Um, esoteric things um and one of the things that you're going to put into your cabinet which you should talk about not me is the pyramid the pyramid well <laughs> i've actually there's actually sort of two kind of um objects which are related to the book i was talking about the job so one of this thing this uh is is actually a bit of a sculpture that i made for an exhibition that takes and eyes a few years ago called the dark monarch um and they asked me to make a sculpture but there was this sort of idea that well, you know, if it's a sculpture, it has to be roped off. Like, it'll have a barrier around it. So I started thinking, well, well, what do I do? What do I do? And then eventually came to this idea of, like, I want to make a sculpture that is a barrier. So 
there's no nothing in the middle it is just a barrier so I started looking about think like at that in a very wide sort of sense and I made a sculpture which was basically a kind of compilation of every kind of thing for warding off things so like traditional you know like evil eye amulets and so this is a piece this is something called uh organite and yeah I mean I'll describe what it is it's it's a kind of pyramid of amber with a quartz crystal in the top and then it's filled with sort of uh scraps of copper and steel and wire wool and it's kind of based on some of the theories it says this it's like a recipe this is a kind of existing existing thing in the world so and it's based on some of an extrapolation of some of the ideas of a guy called Wilhelm Reich um, and it's basically for absorbing negative um, that's probably not quite the right word toxic kind of um, kind of elements in the atmosphere so stuff like environmental pollution microwave energy and I guess now probably Wi-Fi or yeah. but yeah so I quite this is a kind of for me it's a bit of a kind of symbol of some of those kind of alternative technologies but also quite a beautiful thing in its own right and I suppose there's part of me which approaches these sort of things as, as a kind of like con, you know like a conceptual kind of idea but then also there's part of me which is like I hope this actually is absorbing some of this uh, <laughs> well it's very beautiful as you stuff. said yeah and you do you have those around the house I have one in the house yeah. yes yeah I mean I, again it's not I'm not quite sure whether it's there for for what purpose you know whether it's there to kind of protect my family from uh, the perils of you know wife being absorbing <laughs> wi-fi or um just because I like what it looks and what it symbolizes I mean one of the other objects as well which I guess is related to that is this sort of paper slotted device over there which is a um a, a dream machine and it's something you've made before in different out of different materials yeah I, I mean I actually made um you know some sculptures with that as a kind of component I mean that one is it's looking a bit sad now but that's that that was my sort of working studio kind of one it's basically like a kind of homemade strobe light device so you look at it with your eyes closed which I th always thought was really interesting and then the pressure on your eyelids generates like um different colors so it's a bit like you know if you're in a car and you go past you know like trees and you get this kind of colored flashing um but and that's actually what the, the guy who invented it uh, brian geisen like he that's the his it was his experience you know going down a road in france with these kind of like cypress trees and just having this moment of kind of leaving his body but yeah so you would watch that with your eyes closed and it was the the flicker rate would help you into kind of an alpha state and you'd be you know the idea is that you kind of have lucid kind of dreams or visions induced by this light flicker mm. is dream something that isn't of interest to you um and in your work do you think about all the subconscious i'm interested in the subconscious i, I was going to say i have kids so i rarely get into the deep sleep sleep <laughs> deep enough to uh dream um, I have a lot of those dreams where one's, you know, when suddenly woken up, like, ooh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I'm definitely interested in, in kind of psychology. It's weird how when you have that different kind of sleep, because you have kids, it's like a lighter sleep. So the dreams are quite different mm. as well, aren't they? 
Yeah, and I think actually when you do have a more intense kind of deep sleep and the dreams from that, it's quite a shock actually to remember how how immersive that space is. Um, no, unfortunately, I mean, I'm a pretty bad sleeper. I always have been. And um, I think, yeah, having small people around has kind of only amplified that. So. And what, um, what about, so what else would you put into your cabinet? That was three things that's four things but it's a dream machine oh yeah, yeah four yeah okay well the last thing um that i had is this kind of a collection of things really um this goes back to the words we this goes back to the words and i think this also goes back to sort of living in south london um which has this sort of incredible concentration of evangelical churches so when i first kind of moved here i would quite often encounter people on the street with giving out religious tracts which I always really really liked and um, I guess just graphically so I'd always sort of stop and you know collect these things and over the years um, I've amassed quite a big collection of these objects which I still it's a funny thing actually it's like I periodically get them all out and look at them and think oh I must use these in work somehow but generally when that happens it's a sign that something's going wrong because it never I can, I've never been able to do anything with them like what, it, do you mean going wrong in life not in or life in... well maybe in life I don't know but in work it's always a bit of a kind of blind alley because I get to the point where I'm like well actually they're just interesting as themselves it's the thing that's kind of fascinating for me is the kind of like I don't know how they quite often take a really weird approach or really kind of unusual special approach to graphic design typography so it's just quite refreshing I guess it's you know a lot of it's done in a kind of maybe naive way I suppose on a more you know in a more complicated way I, lo I like the idea and this goes back to the drawing of God thing of how you you know graphically or in words convey ideas about belief it's also like a context thing as well um because you've got i should explain but in the studio here there's a whole pile of these leaflets that you've amassed over however many years and seeing them all together they are they look it's quite surreal and there were different flies about you know like religious or help you know how to help people who are depressed or um invitations to um some sort of religious or Christian ceremonies and that kind of thing. But um, it reminds me a bit of, you know, and you, now, and I was going to ask you about what your thoughts were on this, actually, um, the internet, because when you're browsing things online, you can get a similarly disconnected experience by looking at everything that comes, that appears to you out of context. Mm -hmm. um, and some of them are in the form of memes or words, um, almost similar to the way that you use your words. Um, and there's that, that I was just going to ask you about this whole thing of, of sort of decontextualised words and how text, the meaning changes yeah. well, I think that was something that when I st started working with found text I was really interested in the idea of what happens when you take a voice from one place and you put it somewhere else so one of the first um, text, -based, text based pieces I made said why is it something instead of nothing which was a line from a country alternative country um, song but you know it also is the first sort of fundamental question of philosophy so it sounds you know it's a big complicated question and I kind of like the idea that you would maybe appreciate it in a different way depending on um you know your insider knowledge 
but in a way it was about trying to de take that hierarchy out of things you know but I think at that point so this is around probably 2001 so it's sort of the beginning of the kind of you know internet I guess people would check their emails like once a day or yeah. you know it's kind of dial up yeah exactly which seems bizarre now um but I think I was starting to grasp this idea of like what happens if you can have all the knowledge or all the kind what's of your relationship like on to the internet now are you online a lot or do you try I'm and avoid not really it? I mean I don't so most of the research stuff I do now through these kind of groups so and then I would you know that's kind of it's, the engagement is there and then I would I suppose go and maybe you know do some further research online but most of the information I gather for my projects comes out of direct interaction with people and I don't really I mean it's funny because I do you know the only thing that I engage with in terms of social media is Instagram just because it doesn't require any writing like I think that was like Twitter to me people were like oh, do you Twitter and I was like well no of course I don't because like w words are really important to me and I don't want to give them away like I, I really for me I really struggle with the texts like it takes me a long time to come up with not very little so the idea of kind of writing stuff that could be used in work I've, I wasn't into but I, I am interested you know I do as a way of archiving projects Instagram's really good because it's just straightforward it's simple it doesn't require any web design I mean I guess there's a problem with the kind of like like yeah. aspect of it as an engagement do you let your kids browse no they're not really the only time kind of to go online with them really is for school projects ironically the last one we did was about internet safety you know yeah. it's kind of, but i am very much aware that you know they watch stuff on netflix and you know they are completely digitally native and i'm sure you know it is only a matter of time but i'm quite happy for the moment for them to not engage with that what do you think about the art world today we were talking before about commercial art as opposed to um, you know, you were talking about the big institutions. Mm. Um, and what are your thoughts on the state of it today? I'm thinking about like freeze and the dominance of things like that. There's massive commercial art fairs because to me it seems like you're quite into you're quite um, your approach seems to be almost trying to burst that bubble, which some people might see as quite pompous. Well, I don't think I'm trying to burst a bubble. I mean, I'm just not involved in it really. I but mean, is that a conscious choice? Who knows? <laughs> no, I mean, I've done... I mean, I exhibited at Freeze for probably the first 10 years of Freeze being there, so it's not like I haven't engaged with it. It's just, you know, at the moment, um, you know, I don't work with a gallery in London um, that does, you know... Or work with a gallery that does fairs. So there's... Um, you know, and, and actually, the con one of the reasons I don't is because I worked with a gallery for nearly 20 years who was you know they started off as a you know very independent and they wound up you know the gallery sort of formal gallery sort of space side of things last year because of the way art fairs have affected the art market the Vilma gold yeah so you know that was and I, I think all of you know the art is completely understood um that position because you know it's a for small galleries it's a high risk to travel around the world paying a huge amount of money to be part of fairs um and you know not sell work you get into debt very very quickly and also it's a sort of constant kind of turnaround of you know you go there and then you go there and you know and that that is what has you know happened in the last 
I don't know, 15 years or so, that didn't used to be the case. You'd have a few fares. And now it's, you know, it's a massive business in its own right, you know, down to the shipping and all of that stuff. And I think it will, you know, I think everyone knows that it will kind of reach its, it doesn't need anyone to burst its bubble. I mean, it's sort of, it's, it is a system that's struggling with itself at the moment. But I think as a spectacle, it's been fantastic for, you know, in terms of, um, you know, for the general public to, to actually really be exposed to a lot of contemporary art and see the diversity of it to the point where now, you know, you go to freeze when there's, you know, the sort of queues around the block to pay £50 or however much it is to get in. It's just, it seems unthinkable because, you know, I remember at the beginning, you know, there, you know, there seeming to be like a general sort of sense of like, is this going to work in London? Is this going to work? And obviously it's been a massive success and now there's all, all kinds of fairs. Mm. happening here and what about the work that you're involved in now well at the moment I suppose the two main strands of what I'm doing is uh, I am working on well a couple of public you know art projects in terms of like you know commissioned permanent sculptural works in London one um, which I can't really say anything about which will be launched in October and then another one I'm working on the Great Ormond Street Hospital, which will be December, I think that will open. And then I've got, um, I suppose, these these projects which are a bit more kind of to do with engagement. So I've been running, uh, working on a project in Luton, where I was born, for a couple of years now, where we got quite... Uh, I'm working with a local visual arts charity there to kind of run a public art programme there. So we've been doing that for two years now. So that involves trying to... We got, you know, got significant funding from the Arts Council to do that and we've been working with bringing in, you know, high quality international artists, commissioning them to make new works and, yeah, trying to see how that functions in Luton. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Yeah, I've got, I've been working, I'm about to start work on a new piece for Hospital Rooms, which is a charity that um, places artists and artworks in mental health settings so I worked on the first my first project with them last year um, with the Snowfields Adolescent Unit which is a part of the Morsley Hospital in South London which is a big psychiatric hospital um, and I worked on site there for a week making a wall painting so that and that was with some of you know during that time working with some of the people on the on the ward as you know helpers assistants and I yeah we're going to start a project imminently at um, the Bluebell unit which is in Westbourne Grove again which is an adult unit Um, I'm still working out exactly what I'm going to do but um, it will be they've been um, intense projects there I mean I think those and similar kind of projects I've done where you're in an environment where you kind of really feel I don't know the weakness of art but also that it can be of real value what do you mean by the weakness well just it's like there's things you know people with serious you know conditions in real pain and you know you're very much aware of that it's just the the weight of the situation but i think it's a it's a you know it feels it's difficult but it feels 
like a really positive thing to do and I think you know the whole project is about showing some investment and care in those spaces because obviously it's NHS sort of spaces so typically you go in and you know the staff are working really hard but the places are you know they need a good look of paint you know look of paint they just need to be they need to feel a bit more positive and a bit more cared for and I think the project does that you know and also because you know I haven't met an artist who isn't a supporter of the NHS so it's kind of it's a good way of you know us collectively supporting supporting that Mm. Um, and there was just and then there was the other I read about your um, Journeys Festival project as well which is another thing you've been involved in which is a yeah well that was originally uh, commissioned for Journeys International Festival by um, Artreach last November in Manchester so that was a project working with um, a group called United for Change it's an advocacy group for asylum seekers and refugees in Manchester so I went I met with them over last summer and talked to them tried to understand a bit about the difficulties of their situation and some of the you know I mean terrible things that people have experienced both where they you know where they initially left and also in the UK um, and then produced four works based on those conversations which were you know large scale prints which were displayed in Manchester and actually just reconfigured that so this the works were on um, exhibit in St Helens now because it was a refugee week a couple of weeks ago so they went up we worked on the with Pathway Arts which was the facilitators throughout um, worked in Manchester worked with them on finding new sites in the actually on the external of um, libraries in St Helens I mean that was such a humbling experience and I haven't been more affected by any of the groups that I've engaged with than I was I was so um, yeah I was so worried about the artworks for that, to be honest. That so, I, so you took words from some of their text messages, was that um, right? The way that it worked really was to do with the tone of what they were talking about. Mm. And if, you know, you have to remember a lot of these people are very educated people, and I was surprised as well because I'm hearing about some experiences they. Were you talking had. them in English or through translation? Yeah, like everyone yeah. speaks Eng- yeah. you know, English. Again, it's like. <laughs> Humbling, yeah. Yeah, you know, this is people from all kinds of backgrounds. Um, and I, I thought people were going to be... There's a sort of anger because the system is so painful for people. But they're also kind of, you know, at the bottom of it is pe- people who generally want to be in the UK more than anywhere else. And they want to work and they want to pay taxes, they want to contribute and all of that stuff. So even though there's, there was a sort of still kind of like a respect... There, which I found quite confusing. I was just like, why aren't you angry? Well, we are angry, but we also still really want to be part of this place. So I kind of, that kind of rang through a lot of what they were talking about. And the initial, initially I thought, well, I'll start all of, the idea with that work is basically to take a voice which is unheard and put it in a space where you might find advertising or sort of some sort of authoritarian message. So it's shouting at you as loudly as possible. And I wanted it to be really direct so where the, which are the public spaces or buildings that those these words are going to be? Uh, well, those were, so those were on. I mean, one was on the museum, National Football Museum in Manchester. One was on the People's History Museum, and then we had some which were just in you know public squares. 
And they all start with this phrase, which is like, listen to me. Because I just, they actually, initially they all said, please listen to me. Because everyone was so kind of always so polite. And I just I thought this sounds like a bit um, you know, apologetic. And I just want it to be forceful. And then they, I, I think I just looked at some of the themes that were coming through. You know, th- things that people could relate to. So like if you, you know, just basic human things like being scared or kind of wanting to work or the, the sort of mental anguish of uncertainty. So they say things like, you know, listen to me, I'm human, I'm scared. Or listen to me, I want to work, I want to pay taxes. So there's, I, it was a way of just trying to, I suppose what I did was take lots of different things that were said and kind of make, tried to make this sort of synthetic kind of hybrid voice. And I think I was so nervous about what the group thought. I literally, I did make myself ill with worry to the point where I was in bed with a fever and I had to sort of, um, Emily who like works for Pathway Arts took the artwork up and presented it to the group and I was waiting for the phone to ring, kind of like, they're going to hate it. And they were really positive about the project and so that was a big, big moment. <laughs> wow. But I think you do, you know, in those sorts of situations you really do start questioning the value of what artists do and I think it was affirmative to feel that you know they they as a group who've been through so much still felt there was a you know something to be said for making these kind of projects you know no one once said to me which is what happens quite often you know who's paying for this why don't you get a dialysis machine for a local hospital or you know there's this whole thing of making an equivalent whereas you know for them it would have been very we didn't have a big budget, but we could have contributed that budget that we did have to legal fees or, you know, something. But no, that, that conversation didn't come up from them because they, they saw the value of what was being done. And what about, finally, what, um, what, what are you planning to do over the next few years? Or do you have a plan? Or is there anything <laughs> you'd like to do that you haven't done? Mm. Well, actually, what I would like to do which I don't know if I'm going to get the opportunity to, is I've been running headlong into these sort of projects for about the last five years, and I would kind of like to sit back and do a little bit of work on what it is that I've actually done and how it's worked and what hasn't worked. So I guess that's a more kind of research-type idea. Like, I'd like to, you know, maybe do some writing about it. Um, I don't know whether that will ever happen. Um I mean, I tend to sort of, you know, opportunities come up and you think, oh, that's an ex... When was your last solo show? The last gallery solo show. Um, the last time I did a show in a commercial gallery was it just after my son's birth, so in 2010. But I've done sort of institutional gallery shows more recently. So the last time I put everything in a, um, yeah, kind of like gallery institutional kind of art centre type setting was in 2014 and uh, yeah since then I've just been concentrating on these kind of public things and um, I think Do you feel like you have to have both? I don't know, well I've kind of committed to doing a gallery show next year which I'm going to get really nervous about because I haven't made anything you can put on a wall for quite some time so that's going to be quite yeah a different set of worries but I mean it will be a bit of a relief as well like a lot of these public things are very complicated you know even you mean it'll be a relief to make it well just it's stuff that I can do on my own without it being a 
you know, a case of getting planning permission or, you know, working out how to lift something up to, you know, a certain height. Like a, the, those sort of problems have been, I thought, you know, they're not really art problems, but they've kind of become my art problems. <laughs> so, so that's yeah. going to be at um, a gallery in London next year? It will be, it will be. Um, Watch this space. It, yeah, it is a bit like that actually because it's yeah. going to be. It's a new. It's a new is it enterprise. Gonna, do you so. think the content will be all the types of things you're going to do will be vastly different from previous shows you've had, or will it be a continuation on a theme? I don't know. Wow. What I've been doing to start thinking about it is looking at. I've got a whole bunch of stuff which I never finished, so I've been pulling stuff out which kind of seemed a little bit like it might lead somewhere, mm. and trying mm. to think about whether it did go anywhere or not. So. Mm. That's, yeah, I'm very much at the beginning of that, so I don't know where quite well it'll end up. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been very interesting talking to you. That was an episode of The Collective House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website, and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag 5CarlosPlace. Thanks for listening.